Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show Before we get started today, I wanted to welcome aboard all of the undoubted droves of Part of the Problem and Dave Smith fans that almost certainly heard me on Part of the Problem and are now checking me out. This episode, I don't get to talk very much because Scott Horton has all of the information, and when you have a guest like that, you just shut up and listen. So that's what I did. Uh, but I hope you'll stick around. I hope you guys will subscribe. Uh, for those that uh, are are new, I do have merch. <laughs> Who doesn't, right? Uh, but it's uh, go to Teespring, that's T-E-E spring.com backslash liberty dash lockdown dash podcast. And you can pick up a really cool shirt. Um, if you're watching the video, you know already. If not, uh, hopefully you'll go check it out. It's uh, Statue of Liberty in handcuffs on the back, says Liberty Lockdown. And on the front, you got two little guns in the form of an LL. And uh, it's a great way to support the show. I don't run ads, so this is kind of my way of both getting a little bit of revenue to carry the cost of running the show, uh, but also to uh, get the word out. You know, if you are wearing that shirt and someone comes up to you and goes like, yeah, I'm not cool with the lockdowns either. Well, then you could tell them about the show and hopefully they'll hop on board too. Uh, so anyways, enough talking about me. If you guys want to follow me, I'm at Liberty Lock Pod on Twitter and I'm Liberty Lockdown on Instagram, everywhere else. Uh, if you want to subscribe, you can go to Liberty Lockdown on YouTube and you can subscribe to watch the video version of this as well. Anyways, without further ado, Scott Horton, the great. Welcome everybody to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. I have a very, very special guest today. I think he is probably the greatest living military historian, Scott Horton. Oh, well, that's, I dispute that. You're wrong. You can, you can dispute it. That's my <laughs> belief, sir. This is my opinion. Listen, I'm good on a lot of things. <laughs> I'm not. I don't think anybody, probably other than you, would call me a military historian necessarily. But okay, well, I our try. American um, military intervention historian, to make it more okay. specific. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> Narrow it down you. a bit. Um, I am. I have about fifty pages left in your book, and I, I honestly, I had to take breaks because it's just, it's just a fire hose of information that I could not possibly handle. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable how misled we've been. I mean, I guess I'll just hop right into the deep end and, and just ask you, why is it that so few people are able to see the things that you are? Is it, are, is our media owned? Is it ignorance? Is it malice? Like what, what's your belief as to why people don't see this stuff? Well, I mean, there's a, a few different things. And the first thing is, as you can tell in the book, that, you know, I came upon all this information by reading a hell of a lot of books by a lot of other people and doing 5,000 and something interviews covering this show and reading all of the great writers at antiwar.com and, you know, the, the people that we link to and publish and all that. So very little in the book. There is some original reporting in the book, um, but mostly it's a synthesis of other people's stuff. So I'm not trying to claim a unique perspective on any of this, really. I'm just trying to bring to you what I think some people understand, but what I think is so important that everyone understand. It's unfortunate that everyone doesn't. So, um, but just to make that clear that, you know, I'm 
I'm not coming with that unique of an interpretation necessarily. It's just, unfortunately, it's unique to you mm-hmm. and it's unique to the general audience and the general public out there because this kind of point of view just doesn't, you know, really get hammered home in a way that people have access to it very often. Right. And I think if there's anything unique to it, it's that, you know, as I've done this work for a long time, I've kind of really made it a point to fill in every little you know, piece of this puzzle and the gap in my knowledge. And so I know all this stuff about Carter and Reagan and Bush and Clinton eras and all these things that happened. But this is really the key to that, that really gets, you know, I've been very interested in finding those to make those connections. So there are a lot of critics who know all the same things as me who point out certain aspects of it. But if there's anything unique to it, maybe it's that I'm trying to get your light bulb to go off and get you to go, oh, I get it now, dude. So I already knew that this was true and I knew that that was true and I knew that I was true, but I didn't see how it was that this caused the problem that led to this, that led to that, which then was the thing. So now I'm just drawn together. You know, it's not like, hey, did you ever hear about the secret operation, this or that? There's a little bit of that in there, but that's not what it's about, right? It's Mm -hmm. about, you know, you and your dad both know that Ronald Reagan backed Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. I'm just telling you why Jimmy Carter gave him the green light to invade Saddam, the green light to invade Iraq in the first place. Why it was so important, the Americans thought, to support Iraq during all that time. And then how that led to Iraq War One, and how that led to American behavior in Iraq war one and in the aftermath of Iraq war one. And then what that had to do with, you know, causing further problems down the line for us and that kind of thing. So I'm just really trying to, I think you could, you could probably find these lines being drawn in some places. I'm trying to draw one good line from 1979 all the way through and show you this kind of, from one good long perspective. This is how all these things are interconnected. This is how our government got us into this mess. Is how they misrepresented the cause of the terrorist danger against us to exploit it. Here's how they, you know, essentially has served Osama bin Laden's purposes for the last 20 years of this failed terror war and why we have to just quit it then. Right. Well, and and it's not that I think, you know, that this information is impossible to come by. It's more that once you see the synthesized portrait, you know, once it's all laid out before you, it does become fairly obvious as to the whys and the what's and what went wrong. And yet our media doesn't report on any of it for the most part. I mean, like you said, you're, you are synthesizing a bunch of good reporters that are out there that are doing this work. But in terms of what the American people are fed, it's pretty much all new information. I mean, other than like the fact that there weren't WMDs or things like that, you know, which kind of, slowly slips into the American, uh, you know, news diet, most mm-hmm. of this stuff we aren't aware of. So I guess I'm just asking you, why, why do you think that is? Uh, is it, is it orchestrated? It's TV it- man is part of, well, okay. It's sort of orchestrated, right? I mean, certainly the news media is extremely close to their sources, just on the most Occam's razor explanation. The, the TV reporters and the newspaper reporters have to keep going back to the same spies over and over again to get their stories. And so they end up essentially telling the stories that their sources want them to tell is just the, the easiest way to explain it. But then of course you have the outright ownership of major television companies by military industrial firms, for example, for mm, 15, 20 years, something like that. Uh, NBC 
and all of its affiliates were owned by General Electric, who, of course, are massive weapons contractors, make engines for Air Force jets and all these kinds of things. So you have these huge conflicts of interest. If you watch Meet the Press on Sunday morning, you'll see that they run ads for Northrop Grumman. Mm -hmm. Well, was Northrop Grumman selling you a long range bomber? What's that about? Right. Like, if anything, maybe they're trying to sell you some stock. Right. But what they're really doing is they're just making sure that NBC is dependent on their advertising dollars. Man. That, you know, they are essentially donating to the cause and and intertwining that power, you know, keeping it all intermeshed together. And then you also have the fact and, and you can really notice this if you watch TV news for a very long time. In fact, I'll give you the best. I'll give you the example of the best TV news reporter of the George W. Bush era, John Stewart of mm. The Daily Show yeah. on the Comedy Channel. As far as someone who was really astute for saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, you guys were the ones who were saying this two weeks ago, but now you're telling me that that doesn't make sense. OK, he was probably the best out of the entire news media at the time. And yet, if you watch that show, you know that Jon Stewart gets all of his news also from TV. Mm -hmm. That's all they talk about is what was on TV today. Mm -hmm. They don't read. They don't really know what's going on. You know, they don't read boy. I mean, him and his writers, they don't read books and they don't even really read the damn times. They just watch CNN talk about what's in the times. And then they make a joke about what CNN said. And so, yeah, they, they recognize the ironies but they don't ever really have the depth of understanding. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, to pick on Jon Stewart a little more, only because I love the guy, because I truly do mean that he, he was the most important TV news reporter of that era, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but when they held the purple-fingered elections in Iraq in January of 2005, he swooned and said, wow, look, you know, women with the, holding their purple finger up and to prove that they voted, you know, they dip your finger in the ink kind of thing. So everybody gets to vote once kind of deal. And even women get to vote. And, and under uh, the new Islamic Republic of Iraq, that could be worse. I don't know, you know. And then and yet what was really happening, right? What was happening was George W. Bush was lighting the fuse on a civil war. He was essentially, uh, you know, dooming the Sunnis to and, and it was their own stupid fault, too, that the Sunni tribal leaders tried to boycott the vote to undermine it, which mm -hmm. didn't undermine it, only undermined their own position, even worse. And they were already going to get screwed anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really bad. But like, here's all this really complicated stuff. It's really and there's already a lot of fighting going on. But this is essentially touching off a sectarian war that was going to kill upwards of a million people over the next few years. And. But the images on TV are this kind of just snapshot out of time. And so the context is removed and it just becomes, you know, I mean, look, it, you know, I, I never call myself an expert or whatever like that. I, I didn't I don't have a degree and I've, I've never been overseas. I don't speak foreign languages and stuff. Right. I'm, I'm an American anti-government extremist who keeps track, especially of foreign policy stuff. But um to whatever expertise I do have comes from years in, you know, day in, day out of reading everything on antiwar.com every single day, interviewing the best journalists in the world week after week after week for 17 years now. So, if, you know, yes, I do know what happened in the war in Libya because I, I covered it the whole time. That gives me a real advantage there. But who else is in that position? Almost no one. Right. And the regular readers of antiwar.com are probably almost unique in the world of wow. being exposed to this sort of information 
on a outright regular basis, day in, day out, year in, year out like this in the way that we present it. And it's just, there's probably no other real audience in the world that has access to it. And it is a tragedy. I mean, because there's no, there's no real good reason to believe in this stuff. You know, there hasn't been for a very long time. And the American people agree with us about that. Now the mm-hmm. polls show that, you know, about two thirds of the American people and even more when you ask the actual veterans of the Iraq and Afghan wars agree that we shouldn't be doing this. And yet it's still a very low priority in terms of their will to demand a halt to it. And that's right. the real problem. Yeah, no, that is definitely the problem. Um, so uh, along the same lines of, of wondering how the media is controlled, and I think you answered that very well, I, I, I'm left with the same question as I read your book as to how and why Israel has such a control over our foreign policy. And you know, I, I can't tell if Israel simply owns our government, if they are, if they're funding and owning news media sources to kind of dictate things, if they're, if their lobbying efforts are that successful that they can get us to do our bidding, to do their bidding, or if it's, you know, as simple as the neoconservative movement is our true believers in biblical revelations and they believe in, you know, Jerusalem and Israel and all that stuff. Um, do you have any idea as to how they wield their power when it comes to because because you made a great point when it comes to Israel not worrying about the American damage when they supported uh, essentially Al-Qaeda in I think it was in Syria and Mm -hmm. and how they don't care about the fact that we were attacked by Al-Qaeda I mean in in fairness our government doesn't seem to care that we were attacked by Al-Qaeda so I'm just I'm just perplexed at this like it, it really does seem as if the American military machine is not interested in defending the American people nearly as much as it is the Israeli people. Um, yeah. Am I am I overstating that? No, not at all. Look, I mean, the way it works, and this is, you know, a, a major advancement of libertarian economic theory, right, is this public choice theory and, and you know, the uh, Austrian examination of um, the incentives inside bureaucracies. And... Um, Essentially, what it comes down to right, is that there's no real national interest. And when you say the Israeli people or the American people, that's not it. It's the Israeli power factions in control of the Israeli state at any given time. Sure. And the same thing on this side. Right. So the American people. And I think that this is correct as how I essentially portrayed in the book. And it's my understanding of the situation is that the Israelis and the Saudis especially have more influence in Washington, D.C. than the American people do by far. We're just an afterthought. We don't count at all when it comes to, you know, the imperial court and deciding what is to be done in terms of foreign policy. And so just think about it from the point of view of these Israeli government, their foreign ministry, their intelligence services. They have everything in the world on the line to make sure that America's in their corner, no matter what their crazy ass policy is, whether it makes sense for Israel or America or anything else. They they're willing to. Um, you know, I don't know what could possibly be a higher priority for the government of Israel than making sure that the American people are, or the American state is, remains in a very close alliance and, and subject to their influence. And then, so many of, I think everything that you listed there is right. As far as all those things, other than the neoconservatives being messianic, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, ultra religious 
believers. I think there's very little of that in the neoconservative movement. They're reformed Jews and, and, you know, are basically not, um, there are some, I think, uh, like, for example, uh, I'm almost certain that Douglas Fife's law partner, Mark Zell, was some kind of uh, fundamentalist uh, religious guy. But I think mostly they are, um, you know, uh, under the American reform tradition, which is, this is not so much religious based as it is just, you know, ethnic and kinship identity based sort of politics, which is all mixed together. And in fact, you know, like if you're the son of Christians, we don't say you're a Christian no matter what. But if you're the son of a Jewish mother or the daughter of a Jewish mother, then at least according to Jewish tradition, you are a Jew, whether you believe in that or not. Mm-hmm. And yet, of course, there are Yemeni and Ethiopian and Moroccan and Russian and Lithuanian and German and and all different kinds of Jews from all around the world. So it's not really an ethnicity. It's a religious belief, but it's it's defined in a way that. um you know, is, is full of these gray areas and, and this kind of thing. And so uh, a, a, a large part of Jewish identity for some Jews in America is very tied up with Zionism and the fate of the Israeli state, whether that's directly based on religious faith or not. And right. I hasten to add, and it's an extremely important point in its own right. I don't care about people misunderstanding me. I'm not into disclaimers. I just think it's important that people do understand because it's true sure. that most American Jews don't give a damn about Israel. They don't know anything about Israel any more than the average American does. And the average American doesn't know anything about it. And I think it's something like two thirds of American Jews answer polls to say that they don't identify with the Israeli state or its interests or, or share its concerns or anything like that. Um, I'm reminded of uh, uh, Max Abrams, who's this professor from Northwestern University or Northeastern University, I guess it is. I'm sorry, I forget which direction north his university is. (laughs) No problem. Um, But he was really great on the war in Syria for a very long time. And I remember he did this interview with, I think it was an Israeli, um, I forget who it was. I I thought it was an Israeli news channel was interviewing him. And they're saying, yeah, but, you know, Israel is really concerned about Hezbollah and Iran and the Shiite axis of power. And he says, well, yeah, but I'm an American. (laughs) I don't care about that. Right. Al Qaeda were the ones who knocked my towers down, not Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. And so now you're telling me, but, but, but what Israel wants? I don't care about that. Why would I care about that? Mm-hmm. And the answer is there's no reason he should care about that. He's an American, he's on America's side. Right. And Israel's interests are, in fact, quite different. He identified that difference and he chose his homeland, the United States of America. For a lot of these guys, look, you know, there's a lot of cynicism here, but I think there's also a lot of kind of a honest understanding from their point of view that there's just no difference between American and Israeli interests. And of course, they don't have any interest in seeing a difference between American and Israeli interests. All their incentives are for saying no daylight. You know, it's us and Israel versus the world. But then as I break down in the book, in a very, very simple sense, even though America and Israel are in this alliance with the Sunni Arabian kings and including the Jordanians and the Kuwaitis there, um, that the American people's enemies are not from the Shiite powers, right? They're not from the axis of evil. They're, they are from, they are radical dissident factions from the countries that we support, particularly Saudi Arabia and Egypt. They hate us because we're too close of friends with their governments and prop their governments up in power. And so that's why they're out to get us. But so how does that play out in the wars? 
It plays out in the wars that the American government takes the side of the American people's enemies in alliance with their other allies, such as the Saudis, the Qataris, the Turks, the uh, Jordanians and the Israelis against their common regional adversary. And for those states I mentioned, fine, if they say so, their enemy, Iran. Mm -hmm. But what the hell's that got to do with us? Again, Hezbollah didn't knock down the towers. That was Al Qaeda that did that on the other side of this war. And so um, but now so to get back to your your question there, there's the neoconservatives have a great amount of influence. Um, and there is, you know, the the whether Israeli or just American Zionists, of course, have a major influence in being part of the media and pushing pro-Israeli narratives as much as they can. They also work very closely with the Christian Zionist movement. And, you know, it's I'm not saying just the tail wags the dog because it is both directions here. But I was actually a little bit surprised, sort of. I don't know how exactly to characterize. I was somewhat surprising to find out that Christians United for Israel, which is the group that is backed by John Hagee from the Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, that is the you know keystone of the Christian Zionist movement in America, really. That organization was actually run by, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he was a cousin of Ehud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel and then defense minister under, under Benjamin Netanyahu. And so, um, and then honestly, it's, if you ask, uh, if, if you look at the polls from, um, you know, say the George W. Bush era and, and shortly before that, uh, you will see that the um, kind of D.C. professionals, when, when surveyed, would constantly rank the Israel lobby right up there with the AARP. That's the American Association of Retired People, the Social Security Lobby, right? right? And the gun lobby, the NRA. These are the top three lobbies in D.C., the AARP, the NRA and the Israelis, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee and their associated Israel affinity groups. And they play the game of democracy in a way that, you know, you and I just don't bother doing. Right. Mm -hmm. They work their asses off on this. And like um, I remember my mom did the March of Dimes for charity stuff when I was a little kid. And part of what she did was this telephone tree. Someone would call her and say, "Okay, you do your part now. And then she would have a whole list of people that she would then call. And they were all supposed to then also call everyone on their telephone tree. And everybody's trying to raise money for the March of Dimes, right? Well, this is how the Israel lobby does. A congressman said something negative about Israel today. Everybody call your telephone tree mm-hmm. and everybody call their telephone tree and their telephone tree and their telephone tree. And everybody call this congressman and let them know that you're not going to have it. And you will absolutely support his primary opponent next time. And if he wins anyway, then we'll see you in two years, pal. Incredible. And and never forgive and never forget and make it clear to all 535 members of both houses that if you cross us, you will be on our list and we will put you in check. And then there is no organized anti-Israel lobby in any way. And if there was, it would probably be led by a bunch of jerks who said the wrong thing all the time and screwed it up. Right. And so essentially, and, and in fact, whenever there are say people who um, work very hard for peace with Iran, 
or uh, work very hard for the rights of Palestinians, then they're constantly smeared as being anti-Semitic exactly. because then no matter what Israel, the Israeli government does, then they can hide behind that excuse that, oh, you're only criticizing Israel because you hate Jews, which, by the way, is so stupid because any actual adult who's lived in this society for more than five minutes could tell you anyone. And I mean, all of them. OK, <laughs> Anyone who actually hates Jews is perfectly happy to tell you so and to tell you why you should, too. Okay, there is no one who is truly an anti-Semite, but who just goes around pretending to care about the Palestinians all day. Okay, that creature does not exist on this planet. Okay, Mm -hmm. and so whenever you hear someone being smeared as an anti-Semite simply for sticking up for the Palestinians or opposing Israel's interest in Uh, pushing America into a war with the Persians, then that is on its face dishonest. The burden of proof should be on them a mile high to show that someone has any sort of bigoted purpose in making those arguments. But see, part of it is there's such a shutout of discussion on this issue then that it sounds reasonable, maybe, because you hear somebody stick up for the Palestinians so rarely that you don't know what the motive of someone like that might be. You've never really heard them talk before. Right. Maybe everything they say is just human rights, human rights, human rights, human rights, rule of law, rule of law, protect the minorities, anti-racism, civil rights, civil liberties for the little guy. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's, oh, you know how those Israeli Jews are. And unless you've had an opportunity to actually hear the person out and hear their point of view and the argument that they're trying to make, then the presumption that you start with if you're a victim of American media over the long term is that there's some kind of negative motivation here. Otherwise, why would you be taking the side of the bad guys against our friends, the good guys? Yep. And by the way, and this is really worth mentioning, too, that race does have a lot to do with it. At the end of World War II, this is the beginning of the end, really, of the colonial era. And the British were forced to give up their empire. And the new American empire was not based on outright racial subjugation and colonial, uh, you know, uh, colonial uh, colonization. It was, um, you know, basically an empire of bases and CIA coups and influence and stolen resources, but not in the exactly in the British Raj model. But this was kind of the last gasp for European colonialism. Get away with creating one more ethnic and racial colony here in Palestine. Now, it's not that's oversimplified because especially now, Ashkenazi Jews, European Jews are only about 20 percent of the population of Israel, uh, of the Jewish population of Israel. But they're the ruling caste Hmm. and they're the ones who are always on TV. And and, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu lived in the United States when he was a kid, is educated in America and, you know, um, speaks very good English. And so do all of his contemporaries. And so in the most basic And I mean the most kind of basic bottom line TVs on, but the volume is off in the background kind of a sense. The Jews are whiter Hmm. and the Arabs are the barbarian hordes of brown people. These orcs from the other side of the line who are headed this way and they are to the east of the Israelis. Right. Hmm. And so that's the way that they can portray it. This is like Fort Apache out in the wilderness holding off the barbarians and this mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it's it's a very oversimplified kind of a way of going about it. There's, in fact, um, it's a very I'm sorry, smart way to play it, though. There's, 
there's great documentaries about how Hollywood has, you know, in 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 uh, in Hollywood movies, they have gone to great pains to portray the Palestinians as all of a bunch of, you know, screaming Islamic radicals and all of this kind of stuff, which has just never really been the case there. Yeah. It's well, an agrarian and, society. And, and I can't help but notice a similarity to the Black Lives Matter movement, where if you oppose it at all because of how it's labeled, you're immediately considered or or questioned as, are you a racist? You know, like, no, no, it's because the other I don't- way around too. If you're for Black Lives Matter, oh, what are you saying? White lives don't matter. Oh, sure. when? Oh, what are you saying? When the reality is that, in fact, this is, I think, a great example, right? So look at Black Lives Matter. They really botched it with the slogan, right? Because what they were trying to say was Black Lives Matter too. Mm-hmm. But now, if that's your slogan, now you're kind of admitting that you're in a position of weakness. It sounds kind of pathetic. Black Lives Matter too, right? Like mm-hmm. you're whining. Mm-hmm. But that was what they were really saying. They weren't saying only Black Lives Matter. They were saying the police hunt us for sport as though our lives don't have value. Mm -hmm. And we are here to insist that, yes, they do. And it's not okay to murder us, which is reasonable enough. Right. Mm -hmm. But then other people, what they heard was somebody who doesn't represent them saying that, oh, black lives matter. What are you trying to say? That my white life doesn't matter? Well, screw you. All lives matter. And then get this. You literally have people in an argument. All lives matter. No, black lives matter. (laughs) Back and forth when, of course, black lives matter because all lives matter. But now these people are using all lives matter as a rejoinder to black lives matter also, (laughs) which is really stupid. Right. So what should have been is they should have said our movement is called accountability for killer cops. Yep. Our movement is called cops aren't allowed to break the law anymore or we're going to burn this goddamn city down. Mm -hmm. Okay, the rule of law means it applies to the government, too, or it doesn't bind any of us at all. There you go. Okay, that's the movement, not this or that color of skin has this or that priority over the other, et cetera. And so it all gets all the meaningfulness is washed away in identity politics. So now you stick up for the Palestinians. Oh, what are you saying? The Israeli Jews lives don't matter and they can all just be pushed into the sea and all these things. No, you never said that, right? The argument is that the Palestinians deserves to deserve to not live in a totalitarian police state where they have no rights whatsoever, like blacks in Alabama under Jim Crow in say 1925, Right. right? Which is their current situation in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. But if somebody said to you that Black Lives Matter, do you just say, no, you're trying to destroy. That's white genocide because you or even better. Let's not even say in 2021. Let's say in the 1960s, black people are telling you we have to end Jim Crow segregation in the South. And then somebody says to you, that's white genocide. You can't stop the ethnic and racial apartheid subjugation of American blacks, because that's the same thing as saying that white people in Mississippi aren't allowed to be white people in Mississippi anymore. Well, that's just bullshit, right? That's stupid. Right. Saying that you're not allowed to be uh, in a supremacist 
dynamic of state power completely oppressing and suppressing people and denying them their natural rights and any civil liberties and civil rights that they have to participate in this society, you don't have the right to do that, to insist that you stop whatever you lose from being able, from being no longer able to do that, you don't deserve to have. Screw exactly. you. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And so that's what we have here, right? That's what we have in the case of Israel. If you stick up for the Palestinians, the Israeli Jews say, white genocide, white genocide. No, what we're saying is civil rights for blacks in the 60s. And you couldn't find a single American Jew in the 1960s who was on the wrong side of that argument. And that's why, my friend, that right now, again, two thirds or so of American Jews don't identify with Israel at all. And American Jews who are interested in the story of what's going on over there are extremely divided over the treatment of the Palestinians. And there's really a crisis going on in, you know, liberal Zionism in America, because most American Jews, like 90 percent, 85 or 90 percent of American Jews are liberal Democrats. Right. Only the very richest ones are right wing. And a lot of times not even them. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still essentially liberal Democrat. Um, you know, civil rights, 1960s civil rights era liberals is essentially, you know, they're, they're not too far to the left, but they are, you know, civil rights types. Yep. And so they're very divided on this. And, and that ought to tell you all you need to know right there. Right. Like, why in the world would any American Jews say that in the situation in Israel, Palestine, it's the Palestinians who are being treated unfairly? What motive could they possibly have to side with the other side? And the answer is truth and justice exactly. and liberty and freedom and morality. That's it. That's right. the answer. They know what the truth is. And the truth is that the Palestinian people are being treated unfairly. They're being treated like the blacks of Mississippi in 1920. And it ain't right. And it was the American. It was many American Jews who did a hell of a lot to change that for blacks and everyone else in America Indeed. back yeah. in the 1960s. And they're not willing to live with a divided conscience on that. And so they're good on it. They're great on it. And That's in great. fact, there's a cynical take there, too, which says that. Um, OK, so let's say I was just describing people who are maybe more on the left or more sincere, but there's a cynical liberal Zionist take that still says that Israel should get out of the West Bank and let the Palestinians have the West Bank and have the Gaza Strip to be an independent Palestinian state, because their worry is not that apartheid is bad and is a weight on their own conscience or something like that. But their argument is that apartheid is unsustainable hmm. and that if the Israelis seize all of the West Bank and all of the people who live there and just lord it over them in this totalitarian system indefinitely, that that cannot stand, that eventually at some point, the, the will of the United States and the European powers and others to support Israel in that system will break down. Right. That in fact, that was what Ehud Barak said um, himself was that part apartheid is unsustainable. And so it's, um, you know, it's the Israeli right wants to just seize the West Bank and then maybe someday figure out an excuse, maybe during the right crisis to purge and, and do another trail of tears, force march uh, and, and, and uh, cleanse, as they call it, the rest of the Palestinians out of the West Bank, whereas more liberal Zionists, and especially in America, I don't think there's much sentiment like this in Israel at all anymore, but certainly among some American liberal Zionists, 
they think this is the real problem is they're not going to be able to get away with a forced march trail of tears. And so instead, they're going to seize this territory and all the millions of people who live there, which they really already did in 1967 and have held ever since then. But that it they outright annex all of this territory, uh, which they almost did a year and a half ago or so. Um, uh, but stop short of that. But that if they do that, then that'll be it. There will just be no denying anymore. This is apartheid. This is essentially half the population absolutely denying civil rights and liberties to the other half of the population of the single nation state there between the river and the sea. And that that is untenable and that has to stop. So even from the point of view of a pro-Israeli Zionist, you should you could very well take the position that the Palestinian people must be free, if only for the good of the Israeli Jews, not for the good of the Palestinians. Right. Out of self-interest. Yeah, that makes yep. that makes perfect sense. Well, but no, nope, uh, you're an anti-Semite for thinking about that. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's that's Even why if we, you're Jewish, I guess. <laughs> that, that's why we talk about it on Liberty Lockdown because you can't stop us from from telling the truth here. Um, so I wanted to ask you because after reading your book, you are you are left with an unbelievable rage that. You have been misled into essentially every American. Uh, if, I, I'm just going to call them wars, even though they may call them intervention or skirmish or whatever. Um, and and it leads me to the the obvious question: Is are we are we being are the Uyghurs or the Uyghurs, whatever you want to call it, in in China? Because I know that they've been used by the CIA in Afghanistan and some other places to you know essentially sow discord. Is that is has that occurred as well in China? Is that why the Chinese are are treating them poorly? I know that you've stated or or you've you've linked to some articles where it appears that perhaps the the so-called you know extermination camps and things like that are way overstated. So if you could help my audience understand a little bit better as to what's actually occurring, I would really appreciate it. Okay. So the first thing is I am not an expert on what is going on in Xinjiang now. Okay. And I want to know, and I'll get back to that article that you talked about uh, explaining the fraud behind a lot of the worst accusations that are going on now. I can at least address that. Sure. Um, but let me go back. So in, um, in the 1990s, when Al-Qaeda was already attacking the United States of America, the Clinton government was still supporting them in Bosnia, in Kosovo, and in Chechnya, and essentially acting like we can get away with using these guys. And so when the Bush government came in, they were still trying to negotiate with the Taliban in the early months of the Bush government, uh, still tr to try to see if they could get their pipeline built across there, even while Al Qaeda was preparing this attack against the United States. Um, but there was always, you know, the Clinton government had worked with Saudi Arabia and Pakistan to help support the rise of the Taliban to power in 1996. And and really for the purpose, they wanted them not just to uh, win the civil war, but win it outright. They didn't want a peace negotiation or anything. They wanted the Taliban to win outright, really consolidate power over the whole country. And so they could provide security for the Americans to build a pipeline from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan to the Pakistani port of Karachi in order to try to screw the Russians and, you know, stick all our straws in the Caspian basin and figure out a way to siphon all that oil out without having to go through Russian territory. And that was a big part of why they backed the Chechen terrorists. Um, at the same time that Bill Clinton was actually paying the entire cost of Yeltsin and Putin's war against the Chechens, the CIA was working with the Saudis to support them too. Oh my God. Um, and for those same pipeline politics. <laughs> now, so 
there's a great um, uh, international correspondent friend of mine named Eric Margulies, who wrote War at the Top of the World and American Raj, which are two just absolutely incredible books. And he has told me numerous times of the story of when he went to Afghanistan in the summer of 2001. So this is during the W. Bush years, but clearly what he witnessed was a legacy of the Clinton years that had not stopped. And although I don't, you know, I don't know when was the last time somebody handed them a bundle of cash or exactly the particulars. But uh, as Eric put it, these were clearly CIA supported Uyghur training camps in Afghanistan in the summer of 2001. That would be up to and probably including the day of the September 11th attack. These guys were still training in these camps. Incredible. And then one of the really horrible major ironies of that is that when the Americans invaded, George W. Bush needed a public relations stunt so that he could try to convince the American people that there were legions of these terrorists out there. And that was a big part of the reason that they opened the prison at Guantanamo Bay. You know, they said it was so the courts couldn't reach the bad guy terrorists that they had captured so they could do what they wanted with them. But as we all know, the CIA took the real terrorists to black sites in Romania, Poland, Morocco, Thailand, Afghanistan, Diego Garcia, ships on the high seas and whatever they wanted. Not to Guantanamo Bay. College Sheikh Mohammed and the guilty didn't show up at Guantanamo Bay until 2006. Right. This what happened at Guantanamo was a PR show where they, you know, essentially took a bunch of nobodies. And threw them in there in order to have 700 terrorists and make it look like there were enemies out there to fight rather than this very small group of bandits we were up against and that progress was being made and in a rapid fashion. And so as part of that public relations stunt, of course, many of these Uyghurs were then rounded up and sent to Guantanamo Bay and tortured when they had been. That was the reason they were there was working on a CIA op against China in the first place. Mm. Okay, now. So. Um, I don't know a damn thing about them or what they're up to until we get to Syria. And we have uh, numerous reports, including especially from Seymour Hirsch um, in his article, The Red Line and the Rat Line for the London Review of Books about the Libyan weapons and terrorists that were shipped off to the war in Syria and how the Turks had worked with Al Qaeda on the false flag sarin attack of August 2013. And in that same article, he talks about, I think something like, uh, I forgot the numbers. Okay. Um, I'm going to say it's like 10 or 15,000. I think he said Uyghurs had traveled from China to fight. So like, if you think of the map of Eurasia in your head there from Turkey, you know, the Turkic empire, the Ottoman empire, um, you know, ruled Mesopotamia and all that. But at certain times in their history, their influence stretched all the way East to China. And so, you know, the, the Uzbeks and the Turkmen, and the the uh, Uyghurs and these others have, you know, essentially are, are remnants of the old Turkish empire and the old Turkish order and have a lot of Turkish blood and customs and languages and all these things are in this kind of central band north of India, south of Russia, mm-hmm. right all the way across the middle part of Asia to China. And so um, there's, you know, this is kind of the Underground Railroad, right, of, of these Uyghur fighters then travel to um i don't mean to make a direct comparison to escaping slaves you know what no, i mean? I get it yeah this uh, this transit network of fighters to go and fight in the war in syria you know by by way of turkey to go and fight on the side of al-qaeda and the cia and and our saudi and jordanian and israeli allies etc um 
And then I also know that um, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who is now a good guy, but was Colin Powell's chief of staff and helped lie us into war in the UN presentation of 2003, but has been doing his penance ever since then, telling the truth about things. Um, he gave a speech at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity Conference. I believe it was two years ago in 2019, where he said that 20,000 Uyghurs had uh, fought in Syria and that the CIA had a program or a policy of using them to destabilize China. Again, just like in the story of the whole terror war, the Al-Qaeda guys are useful to the U.S. In the, the, in the broad stroke of this thing, America's been backing the Mujahideen since 1979. They stopped between 2001 and 2006. And then they started again. And we, so we stopped just long enough to fight them. And then we, you know, backed them right away after it's, that's it's right. We've been taking their side in every conflict since that time. And so it's fighting against the guys that knock the towers down is the aberration. The rest of the time, these are America's mercs and they do our dirty work. But I, I do have to say though, that I don't know anything really about what specifically the CIA was doing or, you know, what decisions had been made what findings had been issued or, or what they're actually up to there in the Obama or Trump years. I just don't know. Um, That's fair. I, and, and I'm, and I'm so, not, I'm not asking yeah, you to talk out of school. It, it just, it leads no, but, to that I mean, natural you question, it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I want to specifically, I want to directly address the question the way you phrased it, which was what does American intervention now have to do with the way that the Chinese government is treating the Uyghurs or, or recent American intervention there? What is it possible that the current crackdown against Uyghurs there in whatever form it is taking place is a reaction to the CIA intervention there? And my answer to you only is that I agree that that's a great question, but I really don't know whether there's a causal link there really at all or not. And yeah. I definitely want to know more. And I, I don't know. I always got along really good with Larry Wilkerson. He's always really hard to get a hold of. Uh, I think maybe, <laughs> maybe for scheduling reasons or something, I have a very hard time getting him on the show, but I'll see if I can get him back on and, and learn so, a lot man. more about that. But as far as, the accusations of genocide going on against the Uyghurs right now, this is bogus. Mm -hmm. And I am not the world's expert on it. I, I actually in my Mozilla right now, I have about 35 tabs open that I have been kicking down the road like a can um, to get to here. I have a, a major research project to get into here. Um, but suffice it to say that all of the worst accusations, well, let me put it this way. Apparently, quite apparently, all of the worst accusations that the Chinese government is engaging in a genocide against the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province in Western China, all essentially come from professional liars. And the worst offender here is a German um, kind of a Protestant holy roller, um, you know, um, what you call it, like a, a premillennialist uh, type Um who you know says that Jesus is going to come back and send all the Jews and gays and feminists to hell and create a new order in the world and all this crap? Um, he, uh, you know this this certain kind of of fundamentalist Christian um, named Adrian Zenz Z E N Z. He's a German, and uh, if you go and scour the internet for Chinese genocide, Chinese genocide, you'll see that everything links back to this guy. And then what happened was Gareth Porter, the great, who's the best reporter in America, my very favorite guy, 
um, he teamed up with Max Blumenthal, the editor of the gray zone. And they went through and they crunched this guy's numbers. They went and checked all of his claims against his data and they just didn't hold up. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what you have is in China, you have this one child policy that did not apply to the Uyghurs for all this time. Then, then they then it applied, started yeah. applying it. Yes. Yeah. And they and in fact, what they did was they loosened up on the Han Chinese. And so now you can have two. And then they brought the Uyghurs down from what, four to two or something like that. Yeah, that's what it was, but, I think. And then or they also and they expanded the availability, essentially, of birth control. Mm-hmm. Now. To me, like, frankly, you know, whether this is abortions or, um, you know, IUD implants or whatever it is that they're doing. I'm a libertarian. I don't like the idea of any government being in charge of medicine, especially things that are along the lines of, wait, are we doing harm or are we do no harm here? I I don't like the idea of government being in charge of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Right. At the same time, though, let's not sit here and pretend that Planned Parenthood in America is simply a genocide against blacks, right? right. Like apparently I don't know the recent numbers. This is not my issue. Uh, I promise, but I think per capita blacks get more abortions than whites in America, but you wouldn't say, aha, see the totalitarian American government is implementing this campaign of genocide against the black population by encouraging this. You might find some black preachers who phrase it that way. Sure. Um, but, but that's not the intent behind Planned Parenthood. And, and it's not really a fair way to characterize the results of even all those abortions. Right. Um, and so then in this case, and, and it's true though, that Planned Parenthood is not exactly a direct adjunct of the U S federal government, but then it is, then again, it sort of kind of is, with the money they take and all the laws that regulate their, their behavior and all that. Sure. Um, but essentially this is what we have here and Gareth and, and Max show that what they have is an increase in the availability of birth control. And yes, the, what you and I would consider in our home state, totalitarian family planning, you stay the hell out of how many times I get my wife pregnant. That's between me and her and nobody else yep. if, if in America. And I, so the point being that the Uyghurs in China are not free, but they are evidently not much less free than any other Chinese, <laughs> right. of, you know, the Han ethnicity or any others. So, you know, they say that they're being put in work camps Well, the whole damn country's a work camp. But then again, look who's talking. We're not free either. Mm-hmm. You know, same as complaining about the Ayatollah in Iran and his extremely flawed republic there. <laughs> look who's talking yeah, now, i remember um dennis rodman was on glass CNN. yeah yeah dennis rodman was on cnn and they said how can you go to north korea he has two hundred thousand people locked in work camps it's like we got and dennis million. rodman says we have two million people <laughs> exactly. locked in work camps yeah and the and the anchor goes oh i don't know back to tv and these guys <laughs> yeah. never read and don't know anything I'm like oh geez we have two million people locked in work camp and then what's he gonna do deny that they're work camps when we all know they are two work camps of course yeah they're being you know they're they are absolutely um doing work you know uh, privatized quote-unquote contracted work for American corporations from American prisons for pennies a day and this kind of thing, which is slave labor. And they'll sure. cite it too. look 13th Amendment says we can enslave people as long as they've been convicted of a crime. They'll hide right behind it and give a damn. That's exactly what that's they incredible. call it. So, yeah, you can point your finger all you want, but it's the American government that's the greatest purveyor of violence on the face of the earth. And the American government that locks up a greater percentage of its population than the lawless totalitarian pseudo communist state of China. Incredible. And, 
then again, well, they execute a lot more of their prisoners than we do. But yeah, know, yeah, I mean, it's a ruthless state. I'm, I hope no one reads an apology in what I'm saying here. No, no, but no, I'm no. just saying just like the Ayatollah isn't making nukes and just like David Koresh is not planning to invade and conquer downtown Waco. There is not a genocide going on in Xinjiang. It just that, is not. That's all. That's the only reason I bring it up is because uh, anytime I see a story like this that is kind of bubbling under that you you start to catch wind of and you're like you're like this has this has the feeling of like I don't really know what's happening but it it certainly could be militaristic propaganda where oh we have to now we have to now have a proxy war between us and I don't know one of China's neighbors so that we can free the Uyghurs and and let's I support just, some moderate rebels. Yes, exactly. And and we've supported moderate rebels much to our detriment over the past, you know, 40 years, 50 years and and I I always am hesitant to hop on board even though like obviously as a libertarian as an anti-war person as as someone who wants people to be free if if there are people that are being enslaved i would like to speak out about it but i also don't want to speak out about it in a way that that supports militarism so it's a it's a fine balance that i have to find and i want to get get you out of here on this um after reading your book you're you're left with a, a pretty deep conviction that perhaps the american government is inept uh, and I, I don't know if that's a fair assessment. I would like to know from your perspective, because they, the fact that there aren't generals and people that have you know, participated in Iraq War One all the way through uh, Iraq War Three and a Half, as I think you described it, why are there not more that are coming out and saying, hey, we fought against these guys. Now we fight for these guys. This is all proxy war nonsense. We are risking our... our our blood and our treasure and our, our manpower for essentially nothing for the for the benefit of other countries are they are they simply not abreast of the information that that you are i think that- that's mostly right i think that's mostly right in fact because you can see by relief the the opposite examples right and i have a few in the book in the serious section where i talk about tulsi gabbard and i talk about mike flynn right mm-hmm. and how and and what extreme exceptions they are and i also cite Thomas Jocelyn and Bill Roggio at the Long War Journal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so these Mike Flynn, Tulsi Gabbard, and uh, Jocelyn and Roggio, all four of them are hawks, absolute hawks on killing Al Qaeda guys. Kill them all. Kill them somebody near them. Not too concerned about that. Fight fire with fire and don't ever stop. That's what they all believe. Okay, but they also all believe that. What the hell are we doing siding with Al-Qaeda fighting against the Shia? Like, I'm sorry, Israel, and I'm sorry, Saudi, but we don't really care how much you hate Hezbollah. It's Al-Qaeda that knocked our towers down, and we're keeping our eye on that ball. And you're never going to get us to say that we think that the Al-Nusra Front are moderate, decent gentlemen in comparison to any other force on the planet, whether it's the Iranian Quds Force or Hezbollah or anybody else, mm-hmm. just no, just no. And look at Tulsi Gabbard. You know, Tulsi Gabbard was a, um, a major in the Hawaiian National Guard stationed at the Balad Air Base north of Baghdad in a, a medical unit. And so, in other words, she saw dead GIs a lot. She saw dying, screaming GIs crying for their mama as they died. Blood all over the goddamn place, right? In a very, her war there was very real, okay? It wasn't just some bullshit driving around in a truck here, there, something like that. She was 
in a base that had mortars coming over the wall. All right. And, 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 and had to drive dangerous roads between here and there. Technically she counts as a combat veteran. Certainly, you know, I bet if I, I bet she wouldn't admit it out loud, but I bet she can still taste the blood. Right. Okay. Now they were telling her the bad guys from all that. They're our friends. Now they're the moderate rebels. And we're on their side because we hate the Shiites more because that's what Israel wants. And she's just like, no. And in fact, she'd been palling around with John Hagee and the Christians United for Israel. She was ready to be a Zionist tool if that would advance her career. But then she's like, wait a minute, man. You guys want me to take. No, I can't do this. I can't pretend that Al Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria, are now the good guys now that they have moved to the west of the line. Right. It's like asking her to kill her best friend. Right. It's 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 literally asking her to betray the people, her comrades, her American GI fellow GIs who died in front of her eyes from fighting these guys. Yeah. Yeah. So she said, no, screw you. I absolutely will not go with that narrative. Right. Uh, Mike Flynn was another one. Mike Flynn. uh, This article is something else, man. Again, Seymour Hirsch, military to military. What's it about? It's about how Mike Flynn was the head of the DIA. And he disapproved of President Barack Obama's policy of high treason in Syria. And so what was what did he do? He was insubordinate to the king. And he went and gave intelligence to the Germans to give to Assad to use to kill the CIA's Al-Qaeda boys. And Obama fired him. Right. Okay. And then Rogio and Jocelyn, couple of horrible hawks. I mean, if it's up to them, we'll be fighting till your great grandkids die of old age. Okay. Against anywhere there's a Sunni with a rifle, but scratch the needle off the record. You want us to back bin Ladenites against the Shiites? Nuh uh. Mm -hmm. They just know too much. It would just be crazy. They just couldn't deal with the dissonance of going along with that kind of a flip flop. Not after all of the shit that they talked about how dangerous these jihadists are and how bad we've got to kill them all. Now they're supposed to turn around and take the opposite view is just too much. And so if you want to go and find, you know, gee, I don't know. Horton says that the CIA is arming Al Qaeda. That sounds like a conspiracy theory. Well, go read it at the Long War Journal <laughs> and you'll see there's Bill Rogio complaining that, look, America's got Jaishal Islam and Arar al-Sham and these other groups on the ground firing tow missiles. But who's their best friend with them in the picture, in the shot, helping them aim the rocket? It's an Al-Qaeda guy, yep. Jabhat al-Nusra. And of course, all these fighters and all this money and all these weapons are fungible. And at sometimes, like when... Uh, Jaishal Islam, Arar al-Sham, and al-Nusra all combined into the um, army of conquest. It was one group. They renamed themselves as one big alliance. And the CIA was still shipping them tow anti-tank missiles. Okay? Incredible. This whole time. It is treason. Yeah. It is not deniable. Okay? They had built the slightest plausible deniability that, now nah, we're only funding moderate rebels. But there were times where, nope, they were directly funding the al-Nusra dudes. Or at least, you know, here's one brigade that is Arar al-Sham and al-Qaeda at the same time, the same place, the same day. But we'll just give the six guys on the right tow missiles and <laughs> never mind that this is all one group, oh my you God. know. And so that's to answer your question, then the answer is they don't know a damn thing about it, man. You know, okay. go back to go find. I wonder if anybody can find these the great clips of Dave Smith 
on the SE Cup show talking about Syria on CNN. And I remember her saying this Bashar al-Assad, he's killing all these people. He's the worst person in the world. And Dave goes, I don't know, SC. I'm not sure he's even the worst person in Syria. <laughs> Look at who his enemies are. Jabhat al-Nusra, who murdered children and cut off people's heads for refusing to change their religion. Right. I don't think that you really know what you're talking about, my friend. Mm -hmm. He did know what he was talking about. Yeah, thank God. And by the way, he was talking to me, but he didn't learn it all from me. He knew better anyway. He already knew better anyway. He was he was talking to me to make sure he was right. And he was, right. <laughs> but he was right. Well, before, before we leave, I, I think it would be a huge mistake not to ask you uh, two things. First, you, you sent me the, uh, or you tweeted out the Glenn, uh, Glenn Greenwald article about how the U S intelligence community is essentially using yeah. our intelligence community against American terrorism now, which is completely counter to what we're supposed to allow for, but secondarily how we are no longer withdrawing from Afghanistan. So I'll just set you up and let you run. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's do the last one first there real quick. Uh, they did announce today through Congressman Durbin. Was it Durbin? I think it wasn't even a Senator. It was a Congressman. I'm sorry. I don't have it in front of me. It's okay. Um, Biden put it out through some Congressman had him announce that, yeah, we're going to not leave by the date of the deal, May 1st. And man, I got to tell you, I don't know what the Taliban are going to do, but I think they're going to fight. I don't think that they're going to sign a new deal that grants an extension. I just can't imagine that they would. If they do, then psh, knock me over with a feather, man. Yeah. Well, they, they already announced all that along. prior. They announced that they were going to, if if it didn't happen, that there was going to be price to pay or whatever they said. So yeah. I'm I'm very nervous about it personally. Well, you know, if they're smart, what they'll do is attack the Afghan government mercilessly and not Americans and try to encourage Biden that really do look at the level of violence we can bring to bear mm -hmm. against your precious Afghan national security forces here. Don't make us come to the Bagram Air Base in force, you know, there whatever you it is. Yeah. I mean, at this point, they could probably seize the Afghan Air Force and fly it on over there if they wanted. You know, I don't know. They have an incredible amount of sway in the country as it is right now. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's such a betrayal for Joe Biden to do this. And, you know, we've gone a year without an American GI dying in Afghanistan. Now that's bound to change and for nothing, for nothing. And and. You know, they say that they're delaying, well, we're going to maybe leave in November instead or some kind of thing. I'm afraid they're not leaving at all. I think that they canceled this deal. Look, the reality is that they lost this war a long time ago. And at some point, the Taliban are going to defeat and destroy the government that America has created there. The Afghan National Army cannot stand. The Afghan National Security Forces cannot stand on their own, not even with all the American money in the world. Right. They cannot stand without American military power to keep them in power. And that so seems what's going to be the happen? case everywhere we go, in, in Iraq as well. Right. It's like it's it's going to be a disaster. Well, you know what? Let me so let me make a comparison there. In Iraq War II, at least, and and you know, Obama messing around in Syria is what threw this all out of balance. But in Iraq War II, America took the side of the supermajority. And so it was a hell of a war, but we eventually won it. The only problem is we won it for guys that then didn't need us anymore and told us to get the hell out. So <laughs> we didn't win it for American. You know, the Bush guys did not get what they wanted out of the war, but they did succeed in what they were trying to do. They just didn't get the results from it that they wanted. But 
essentially the supermajority was ascendant and there was the minority Sunni Arab population couldn't do a damn thing about it. They were soundly defeated in the war in Afghanistan. We're propping up a small minority coalition in power against the plurality population of the country, not the outright majority, but the plurality Pashtun population and you know, a government that's just far more powerful. So this would be more like we're in Iraq War II fighting on the side of the Sunnis against the Shiite supermajority and is isn't going to hold. Man. Right. When we leave, they are going to come crumbling down. But so then you can see from the point of view of American politicians, that just can't happen on anyone's watch. They got to keep making it someone else's fault. Now, anything bad that happens while our troops are there, well, that's just despite their best efforts. But anything bad that happens there after we leave is absolute catastrophe and is all the fault of any American politician who dared to do the right thing and get us out of there. There you go. And then I, I hate to even have to bring up the safe haven myth and the idea that they would attack the United States somehow, um, <laughs> that the Taliban is going to support international terrorist groups to attack the U.S. That's completely ridiculous. And if you listen to these people talk about it, they sound like there is some wormhole magic, uh, you know, shortcut through space time. That allows people in Afghanistan, which is as far <laughs> as you can get from anywhere without being on your way back again right. uh, to, you know, reach out and touch Boston Logan Airport and crash any 757 they want into any target on our East Coast. Right. That's just not the case. And of course, it wasn't Afghans that attacked us in the first place, but a bunch of Saudis and Egyptians who did it. Yep. Um, and then um, I'm sorry, what was the second question? I forgot. Well, the, the second question oh, was the domestic terror war. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So this is really bad. Okay. This is really, 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 really bad. Uh, today, there's a new piece at foreignpolicy.com. This is the QAnon people. And get this, which is, who's that? That's like one hundredth of, one thousandth of one percent of the population of this country is the QAnon people. Sure. Give me a break, dude. They act <laughs> like this is the whole Republican Party now believes in this crap or something like that. And then here's how they conflate it right there in the headline. They go, yeah, the QAnon people and fundamentalist Christians. Oh, oops. Now we're talking about 60 million people or something like that, right? And right. which you can define that so damn broadly to include every Pentecostal and every Baptist and maybe even every Methodist. Or I don't know, we pick and choose which Methodist churches we're going to lump in with this now. And this is absolutely crazy. OK, and they're saying that th these amount to American domestic terrorists and that we have to use our anti-Islamic radicalization programs against them. And that will help. Oh, my God. And then uh, Greenwald has a thing today at his Substack about how. The intelligence community prepared a report about the danger of American radical, violent extremism. And essentially what they do, and this has been the case ever since the 1990s, and they're doing it here, and Greenwald characterizes it exactly, completely correct, that anyone who says that the current American system is not for them, anyone who says that we need to organize politics, but we need to do so in a way that's something different than organizing under our local Republican or Democratic parties, Anyone who has an agenda that is primarily, and it's on the list, you can read it, pro-abortion or anti-abortion, <laughs> pro-animal rights, Antifa, the three percenters, right. and the right-wing militias, the racists, and the, black, the, the white uh, supremacist Nazis, uh, which they define as broadly as they can, of course. And also the um, Black Lives Matter, the more radical factions of Black Lives Matter. Whoever you've got who have uh, American citizens who have politics that they express in ways other than let's suck up to the Republicans or the Democrats and beg them to 
be nice to us are potential violent, radical extremists that must be targeted for counterinsurgency operations, counterintelligence, counter everything to undermine and ruin their uh, activities. And so, you know, it's a huge part of what's going on with all the censorship and social media and the alliance with Silicon Valley teaming up against people and all of this stuff. But um, let me tell you about this thing that I saw. Um, It's an article. You can find it. It's a national public radio. It's an interview with a guy named Robert Grenier. It's a spell like Grenier, I-E-R, but you know, a French name, mm-hmm. Robert Grenier. So he was, he wrote the book, 88 Days to Kandahar. And uh, was he was the CIA station chief in Islamabad at the dawn of the terror war. And man, he gives this interview to uh, National Public Radio just a few weeks ago in response to the January 6th doings at the Capitol. And he says, it's first of all, I can't help but make this side point. It's a side point, but I got to make it. He admits that I'm right about Bush deciding to let bin Laden go at oh, Tora Bora wow. in 2001 because he explains to the NPR reporter that uh, when we went after after September 11th, even the way he says it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing very closely here. The way he says it is something like, well, we went after Al Qaeda, sure, but our bigger priority, you know, the guys who actually did it, but our bigger priority was trying to, you know, undermine the environment in which they were thriving. And that meant attacking the Taliban who didn't do it. Right. That was their higher priority. Incredible. Was going after the guys that didn't do it, but he's just making a metaphor. This is just a side point of a tangent. You know how it is when you're dealing with me. I make tangent points. <laughs> I love them. They so. let Bin Laden go on purpose. Robert Grenier admitted it. Hang him. Okay. Secondly, oh, now I'm a now I'm a radical, violent extremist. <laughs> um, because here's the second point. He says, "Listen, here's the metaphor. The attackers of the insurrection of the attempted coup d'état at the Capitol on January sixth. That small handful." of total jackasses who listen to the Alex Jones show <laughs> and follow QAnon. Right. These complete powerless nitwit idiots <laughs> in, the, in the very low thousands <laughs> right. who accomplished nothing and who killed no one and who didn't even bring a damn gun to the thing. They are Al Qaeda. That coup, that insurrection, they are Al Qaeda. And so, oh yeah, we want to focus on them, sure. But our real priority is the environment in which they're thriving, the Taliban. But who's the Taliban now? The entire American right. Oh, my God. Are the Taliban. That's horrible. The Trump voters of America, the Republican Party voters of America. They are the environment in which Al Qaeda, which is, again, a bunch of harmless cross-eyed idiots <laughs> from the January 6th so-called attack (laughs) in ridiculous, ironic quotes. Right. And so now we have to break out the counterinsurgency doctrine against them to undermine all of their politics, their organizing, their speech, their rights. And the reality is, look, just like with the rest of this, as they admit it, they call it themselves a self-licking ice cream cone. Your government, your heroes, they are your enemy. They are actually worthless people. And they don't want to have to get jobs. 
They don't want to have to compete in the market to see if they can sell their services to someone who's willing to pay them voluntarily. Right. And so instead, they are what H.L. Mencken called government job holders. And what they would rather do than protect you is name you their enemy and declare war against you. That's your security force, your enemy. They hate you. And now you, like me, are a potential radical, violent extremism, uh, extremist. Because if, if you express the belief that their power is illegitimate, then as far as they're concerned, you're going to try to murder them very soon. And so you are, like Saddam Hussein, about to arm al-Qaeda with chemical weapons to attack us. You're a threat, a completely imaginary threat to be preempted. Oh. And you will be. Given how well the war on terror went the first time, I, I, um, I do not look forward to the next iteration. But your, your quote from H.L. Mencken makes me want to say some other H.L. Mencken quotes, but for the sake of my YouTube channel, I will not. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got to keep this thing monetized, man. How are we supposed to get by in the world? We don't want to get real jobs either, do we? Um, so please, if you guys enjoyed this show, for the love of God, get this book. Enough already. Time to win, uh, end the war on terrorism by Scott Horton. It is it is a masterpiece, I, and I don't say that lightly. I, I genuinely believe it. I think that it is probably the most important book you can read right now, particularly given all the things that we just discussed at the end of this show. I think that we need to be aware of what they have done historically and where it looks like they're headed in the future. And if the American people aren't willing to fight it and put an end to it, it will not end, and it will not end well for us. So thank you very much, Scott. You can follow him at Scott Horton Show on Twitter. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the people? Just uh, first of all, thank you very much to you. And then, yes, check us all out at antiwar.com and libertarianinstitute.org. And for amazon.com haters, if you just go to enoughalreadybook.net, that will forward you on uh, to the site with all the different options of where you can buy the book without paying Bezos. I love it. Perfect. Thank you so right. much. Thank you. Really appreciate it a lot. Shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. World premiere. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go. The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening. Scared Hollywood lefties lyrical fappening. A typo with Luke might bring them nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm a shit. Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcast sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Allowable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky Smooth Tom was the only sound Getting so 
so hot, must be Eric July. Screaming in the mic and rip a 59. Miles to Ray showed that black guns matter. Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders. None of us wanted war, but we're ready. You know I be bopping, ain't rock steady. Liberty locked down, please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go. The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe. Let's get into the show.